Let's pray together. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, you are our Redeemer. Lord, you are the promised Savior. The payment for sin is death, but life is freely given in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through His sacrifice, we have been given new life, and we've been forgiven of our sin. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Jesus. He is why we are here. Father, I pray that You will make us the pure vessels You've called us to be. Make us like Your Son. Father, only You alone can cleanse us and make us holy, for You are holy. Father, do Your work in us this morning, and may You be glorified both in us and through us. Father, may people around us in our community know of Your cleansing power, the power of the cross that's in us. And it's given freely by You. Father, may Your love and Your grace be evident in our lives and in our church Father, together may we proclaim the good news of Jesus, that He came to seek and save the lost, that He saves and He cleanses and He makes new. Father, we pray for Your work all around the world. Father, this morning we pray for specifically the people of North Korea, a people who are have been kept back away from the world. Father, how hard it is to even enter the country. Father, first we just thank You for the work You're already doing there, that You have already called a few to Yourself there. Father, thank You for the work that You're doing in North Korea. But Father, we pray that more will be done, that in Your mercy You will save more of the North Koreans, that they will not be deceived by an evil regime who tells people to worship Him. Father, I pray that You will break through that in the groups that You've already established, the churches that are already growing. May they reach out more. May You raise up more brothers who will proclaim the good news regardless of of the persecution and the suffering that they face and what they endure. But through that, Father, others will see how truly valuable and worthy You are, that You will save many more there in North Korea. Father, we thank You for our partner, Pastor Kogo in Kenya. Father, we pray for his ministry there in Nakuru, that You will gather a people around him that You will bring faithful brothers alongside Him, that the truth of Your Word will be proclaimed from this new church there in Nakuru. Father, that You will raise up more churches from this church, that it will multiply, that the Gospel will advance outward there in Nakuru and surrounding communities there in Kenya, and that the Gospel will advance upward in their hearts and their souls, and Jesus will become more and more precious. Father, we pray that You'll be with Pastor Anton today while he's preaching in South Carolina, Father, at uh, Plymouth Church. 
We pray that You will speak through Him, that He will be Your instrument this morning, that He will speak the truth of the Gospel, that He will not speak in error, but the glory of Christ will be heard today there at Plymouth Church. Father, I ask the same thing, that I will be Your instrument this morning, that Your people here will be strengthened through the hearing of Your Word and the working of Your Holy Spirit, and that Jesus will truly become the treasure in our life. Father, may You be worshipped and adored today. It's in Your holy name I pray. Amen. Conflict. Conflict is an area that every person deals with. It's a part of life that no one can escape. Since the fall of man, conflict has been in every area, every aspect, every day of life. Ever since the devil warred against God, Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. Conflict has been part of our world. It has plagued mankind. It has caused wounds, even deep scars in families. It has resulted in destruction and horrible wars all around the world. It's divided us and it's kept us separated. Every single one of us has dealt with some kind of conflict. We can't go a single day without dealing with conflict or hearing about it. It's part of this life. God makes it clear in the book of James that conflict is a result of sin. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, James writes? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Conflict is a part of the depraved nature of man. The world is in conflict against God, and therefore conflict is cosmic. It's a universal problem. Every person deals with conflict. And... Every person adds to the conflict. But the church, God's redeemed people, handle conflict in a new and God-honoring way. God has not removed us from the world. He has not removed us from the conflict of this world. We are in it for one single God-glorifying purpose to reveal the awesome power of the cross and how through the cross, Jesus reconciles people to God. He reconciles us out of that conflict with God. Jesus has removed conflict that we have with God in our ministry. Our new purpose is shouting out for the rest of our lives that Jesus reconciles. We are to show that we've been reconciled to God through Christ. We proclaim it in how we receive grace and how we thank God for His forgiveness. We proclaim it in how we worship God through the exaltation of His Son, Jesus. 
We proclaim it in how we love sinners. And that's a personal representation of God's love for sinners. We proclaim it in how we live with our eyes on Christ, not on lesser things. We proclaim it in how we show kindness toward one another, not expecting anything in return. Because we already have fulfillment in Christ. He is our treasure. And we proclaim it in how we handle conflict. We proclaim it by handling conflict in a Christ-honoring way. Our reconciliation to God through Jesus makes everything new. Our life is new. He gives us new thoughts, new passions, new desires, and He gives us a new way of handling conflict. And that's different from those who have not received God's grace. When Christians fail to remember these truths, the gospel is defamed. It's dishonored. It's dragged through the mud, and we defraud the truth. Jesus is not treasured, and God is not honored. Sinners are then deceived. Reconciliation is reduced to an afterlife issue, not a here and now significance in this life. That's what was happening in Corinth. Paul is horrified by the Corinthian church's lack of sin-defeating grace in their lives. In our text, Paul says, does a brother dare do this? Do you hear almost the disdain, the, the distastefulness in Paul if he was speaking it? Does a brother dare do this? How is Christ honored by such people who say that they believe in Him, but their lives are contrary to the Gospel? To believe in Jesus is to live in obedience to Christ, in accordance to His Word. Someone who's been saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ, his life is new and it's lived in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians forgot this. They brought their old lives into the body of Christ and Christ was dishonored among them. Reconciliation in Christ was not seen among them and in their lives. They were willing to sue one another over petty disagreements. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll get one to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What we'll see in our passage this morning is that it tells us Christians seek reconciliation because we have been reconciled. We seek reconciliation with others because we have been reconciled to God. Hear God's Word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. May God give us eyes to see Him in His Word this morning, and a heart to love Him deeply and supremely in our lives. This morning, I'm attempting to answer three questions about lawsuits. First, why is this text here? Why is it in chapter 6? At first glance, it may seem that it doesn't fit with what Paul has been talking about. Last week, we were talking about pursuing purity. And these verses, this morning, are dealing with something that seems to be completely different. So we need to look at why Paul has included this text this morning. Next, we need to answer what the text is not saying. We need to make it very clear what Paul is not saying this morning. And then the text tells us not to sue other Christians, but why? Why are Christians not supposed to sue brothers and sisters? Three questions, all of which the answer is found in the Gospel. So the first question, why is this text here? Last week I told you that chapter 5 began a new section in Paul's letter that goes through chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7 where Paul is talking about purity. The church needs to be pure in ministry and in lifestyle. Christians need to be pure in how we live and in how we represent Christ in the world. Paul began this section by dealing with sexual immorality and the need for church discipline to keep the church pure. It's loving for the church to practice church discipline so that that unrepentant sinner, that unrepentant member of the church, will be redeemed and the gospel of Christ will be cherished. That is what chapter 5 was about. In the second half of chapter 6, Paul turns back to sexual immorality. And he asked the question, Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So glorify God with your body. And then in chapter 7, Paul talks about having faithful marriages, living in light of God's holiness and His glory. What we need to see in this section between chapters 5 and chapter 7 is that it's not merely talking about morality. Paul is not simply telling the Corinthians to live good, moral lives, to be good, clean Christians. We're not just to be good, moral people making our way to heaven. If that 
were the case, then it would be all about us, wouldn't it? Life would then be about us and then what we do. As followers of Christ, as people who believe in Christ, we are His representatives in the world. Together, we are His body. We live for Christ. Paul says in another letter, to live is Christ. Life is about Christ and not us. So don't make the error in judgment and think that this section is telling you to be a moralist where you check the box and you're doing what God wants you to do, therefore you're a good Christian. This section is so much more than steps to right living. It's about purity. Not only about what we are to do and not do, purity is so much more than that. Purity, being pure, is more about what we're pursuing than what we're doing. It's about our desires and our passions. It's about what's important to us. See, if you take a bottle of poison and you were to pour out that poison and you then clean that bottle, you simply have an empty bottle. But if you put medicine into that bottle, that bottle now has new purpose. That's the life of the Christian. We have been given new purpose in Christ. We have medicine to give. Being pure is about pursuing Christ and His righteousness, not just forsaking immorality. Righteousness, the only righteousness, is found in Christ and who He is and what He has done and how He lives. So when discussing purity, we ought to see Christ in our mind's eye and and follow Him. That's purity. His gospel becomes our life's ambition, and specifically how He loves, how He relates to us. We are to reflect Him. This whole section is about that, relating to others in a Christ-like manner. It's about relationships. It's about the connections, the interactions, the involvement between each other and with others. When we see that it's about relationships, then it makes sense that our text is in chapter 6. Relationship is not just about how we treat others. This is not a moral lesson here. Relationship is how God's love is displayed. It's in relationships where God's love and mercy is given. It's in relationships where His grace is bestowed on His people. Our relationships are to be reflections of God's love. In particular, God's covenant love with His people. Through covenant is how God chose to relate to people. A close bond where God's glory is accepted and honored and treasured. It's a relationship with His chosen people. And we honor that in our relationships. Relationships with others matter because God's relationship with us matters. And we are to reflect that. We honor God by loving others in the way that He loves us. We exalt His covenant-keeping love 
for us when we love in the same way. When we are pure by seeking His glory in our relationships. This whole section is about relationships. Chapter 5 is about restoring relationships within the church through redemptive love. We'll see in chapter 7, Paul speaks about faithful marriages in light of the gospel in our purpose on earth. And all of it points to the gospel. It all resides and ends with Jesus. It's having an identity with Christ. His purity and glory being displayed in the world. In the church, with each other, with other people, everywhere we go, in all that we do, our lives reflecting Christ. We are living the gospel. That's what God's redeemed people do. We live the gospel. We are displaying the transforming power of God's grace in every relationship. We're showing His redemptive love for people. And we're proclaiming that Christ is supremely worthy. That's why our passage is here. How is the gospel displayed and honored when brothers and sisters in Christ have disagreements? How do we relate to one another in a way that exalts the glory of Christ? Pursuing Christ includes how we love one another. It matters because Christ matters. His relationship with us matters. That's why we're talking about lawsuits this morning. Next, before we get into the text, it's important to understand what the text is not saying. It's not saying to keep legitimate criminal matters out of the courts. Paul is not saying that the church is supposed to keep criminal actions quiet and handle them inside the church. Covering up sin is wicked and is contrary to the gospel. It's unlike Christ. God's light exposes sin and He purges it. We are to fight sin with an unrelenting resolve. In chapter 5, Paul rebuked the church for not addressing sin. The church was reluctant to do what's necessary to address outrageous, blatant sin. The church must be willing to do the hard steps of addressing sin in our midst, even if it means church discipline and excommunication for unrepentant sinners. The church is not supposed to keep fraud, the stealing of funds, and abuse out of the courts. A church that covers up these sins finds itself in sin and contrary to the purity of Christ. So please don't walk away thinking that the church has nothing to do with the civil courts. That's not what Paul is saying here. We need to also recognize that God has established the law for good reasons. His law is sovereign and gives the manner in which life is to be lived in light of His holy presence. His law is given and is to be kept. It is to be honored and obeyed. He has His law and those who break it incur 
judgment. Paul is not saying anything against this in chapter 6. The secular court system is necessary. The court system keeps society intact. And that's a good thing. And we honor that. Government authorities, including the court system, are in place to protect citizens and to provide justice. As long as government reflects the law-keeping God and His sovereign rule, Christians are to submit to govern to governments and their laws. The law of the land, a country's laws, are to represent God's law and help people see God's supreme authority over the land. Without the court system, chaos would reign and societies would implode. If you will, please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. God is clear. And this is not what Paul is talking about. This was not the issue in Corinth. Ignoring legitimate laws and civil authority was not the problem in Corinth. It wasn't going on there. Their problem was taking each other to court to settle disputes among them. They would have arguments and they couldn't resolve it, and so they would sue one another in order to win the argument. Sometimes it was even to swindle each other. This is completely foreign to the reconciliation we receive in the gospel. This is nothing like the peace we have with God because Christ bore our judgment. Where's the sacrifice in the Corinthians' lives? Where's the love? Where's Christ among them? He's nowhere. He's nowhere to be seen and adored. The Corinthians were absorbed by the culture around them. They were treating each other like the world treats other people. They were not demonstrating the redemptive love of God. How they related to one another exposed their selfish ambition and their greed. They were negligent in addressing real sin issues in the body. But it's almost as if they leaped at the chance to take advantage of one another, to get ahead, to win a dispute. This is not how the church is to be. This is not how we're identified. 
We have the marks of Christ. His blood is our righteousness. His selfless life is our refuge. His glory is our goal in this life, down to the minute details of how we think of each other, of what we think of one another. We ought to have Christ in mind. And the Corinthians failed to do this. Now before you shake your head or your finger at the Corinthians, we need to remember that we would do the same thing if the Holy Spirit was not in us or moving among us. If He wasn't guiding us. If He's not transforming our thoughts toward one another, if we're not being renewed in the likeness of Christ, we too will take advantage of others. Here's a few statistics for you as of 2015. Born-again Christians in the United States file 4 to 8 million lawsuits every year, often against other Christians. There are approximately 19,000 major church conflicts in the United States each year. That's 50 conflicts in the church, major conflicts, every day. 25% of the churches in one survey reported conflict in the previous five years that rattled the church. It was serious enough to have a lasting impact on the congregation. The problem in Corinth was not an ancient world problem. It's a human problem. It's a problem that can infiltrate our church if we lose focus of Christ. If we don't see that Christ is supreme in every area of our life, we will result in false living just like the Corinthians. We will use our relationships as a means for personal advantage. Conflict among God's people does not reflect the reconciliation that Jesus purchased. We have relationship with God because of the propitiation by Christ's blood. We are to be different then from society. We forgive and love others because we have been forgiven. Your greatest debt that you cannot repay has been bought for you. And you've been brought into the King's holy presence and you are now His beloved child. What debt do you hold on others that matters more than this? You have been given God's grace. You have Jesus. A heart that is sustained by God's grace cherishes the fact that I have received God's favor freely offered in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing I can do which causes Him to remove it. His undeserved favor toward me will never be taken away. My debt has been erased and replaced with unending love and everlasting joy. What can happen to me that compares to the unmerited favor and love of God. Knowing this, believing this, and living this enables me to see disputes and potential lawsuits as frivolous, as trivial. This leads us to the question of why. 
Why are Christians not supposed to sue other Christians? Why shouldn't we haul each other into court if we can't settle our disputes among us? I want to give you five reasons why we don't take each other to court. First, it contradicts reconciliation. The court system can bring about justice. It's intended to protect the innocent. It maintains order, but the courts cannot reconcile the two parties. The court system is set up so reconciliation will not happen. It's an adversarial system. You put one side against the other, and one side wins, and one side loses. Two sides go at it, and one wins, one loses. That's simply not true for fellow believers. If both parties confess Christ, then both have received His grace. Both have victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus is king over both. Taking each other to court fails to remember what we were facing before our life in Christ. Those of us who believe in Jesus, we had a lawsuit against us. God had a lawsuit against us. And we were guilty. We did not keep His covenant. We had broken His law. God rightly had a case against us. What did He do? Our sin was the evidence. God, the Holy Judge, had already found us guilty. But Christ paid our penalty for breaking God's covenantal law and reconciled us to God. If we were standing in God's holy court, Jesus would be the innocent one and we would be the guilty party. God would be just to condemn us. His law would be upheld by our judgment. But Jesus took that on Himself and brought about reconciliation. Taking each other to court contradicts that reconciliation. The same reconciliation that brothers and sisters both have together in Christ. Next, we don't bring lawsuits on other Christians because it disgraces the truth of the gospel. That's what it says in verse 1. When we sue fellow believers over a disagreement, we expose the gospel to division. We present a gospel that does not reconcile. We bring shame on the gospel in all that it means. Going to court changes relationships for the worse. It doesn't improve them. It doesn't repair them. It does not forgive. You become adversaries. Winning an argument becomes the priority rather than reconciliation. Third, in verses 2 and 3, Paul tells us it denies the result of the gospel. A result of the gospel is that in the end times, Christians will rule with Christ. We will judge the world. I don't know what all that means, but I know one day brothers and sisters in Christ will stand with Him and rule the world together. One commentator describes Christians as eschatological people. You are an eschatological people. 
All that means is that our future is sure in Christ together. Together we will rule the world for His sake. Because of the hope for the future we have in Christ, it should affect how we are towards one another today. Fourth, in verses 4 through 6, it ignores the wisdom of the gospel. Paul has already talked about the true wisdom of God seen in the cross. The world knows nothing about this, so why do we bring it before them to make some kind of judgment? How can unbelievers settle disputes in godly wisdom that seeks to honor Christ? It's impossible. They can't. They don't have the the wisdom from God. A fellow Christian has more wisdom than any learned man who's not a believer. Do you believe that? A fellow brother or sister in Christ has more wisdom than any learned person in the world who's not a believer. That's what Paul says. From God. In a local body of believers, there is someone who can bring the two parties together with the Word of God and work out a resolution that's fair, that's just, it's beneficial, and brings them together in Christ. Christ is honored in that way. So we don't bring lawsuits on other Christians because it cannot reconcile. It disgraces the truth of the gospel. It denies the result of the gospel. And it ignores the wisdom of the gospel. Lastly, in verses 7 and 8, it defeats the gospel. Paul says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. The problem is not the dispute. The problem is taking the dispute before secular courts and having them decide the matter. The world does not have that kind of ability. It's supposed the world can bring reconciliation, and it can't. If we think the world can reconcile itself in our problems, then where's the need for the gospel? How is Christ honored when we act like He's not needed? The church loses when Christ is seen in that way. When Christ is pushed to the side and we say, we're going to settle this among ourselves in the world, secular courts, how is Christ honored? Paul calls for us to not only forego our rights, but to be willing to suffer injustice and other wrongs rather than Christ to be seen in this way. When we're willing to suffer so that the body is reconciled, the true essence of Christ is seen. He willingly suffered for reconciliation for us to God. And we do the same. Christ was willing to be silent when false accusations were thrown His way. When He was reviled and lies were told about His character, He remained steadfast in His cause to glorify the Father. And we can too. When He was beaten and whipped and His blood began to flow, He prayed for His persecutors. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. We can do the same. 
in Christ, we can do the same. In essence, Paul is telling us to live the lifestyle of the cross. Conflict will happen. How we deal with conflict determines if Christ is going to be honored in our midst, in our church. We are to live the lifestyle of the cross. We need to remember that we have been forgiven and to forgive others in the same way honors Christ. Reconciliation came with forgiveness of our sin. And this has led us to an all-satisfying God. We don't need to win the argument. We have Christ. This past week, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, Pastor Jordan Thomas, in Memphis. Here's what I learned from him. Turn to Matthew 18, 22, please. Matthew 18, 22. It's probably a verse you're very familiar with. Matthew 18, 22. Mark it. Jesus tells us, He describes a forgiveness without limits. How many times do I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven, Jesus answers. In other words, it's a way of life. He wasn't putting a number on it. He is saying, this is your way of life. You forgive. That's a mark of a Christian. This forgiveness is rooted in a lavish grace that was given to us. In Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavishes on us. This is the same forgiveness that we give to others. Christ is honored when lawsuits won't happen among us and we approach in this way. We are lavished with grace. We've been forgiven and we are to do the same. I can reconcile with others because I have been reconciled with God. True forgiveness doesn't pretend like nothing happened. It doesn't just overlook a sin. If there's sin, if trust has been broken, it's going to take time. It's going to take time to rebuild. But our standard for treating others is God's total, complete forgiveness of me. That's the standard. When I apply this forgiveness without being coerced, without being forced to do it, when I do it freely and completely in my heart to the failings of my brother and sister, I deny sin the power of affecting our relationship. As I grow in my appreciation of God's forgiveness, I grow in my ability to forgive. This reflects the gospel. This is why we don't take each other to court. This is how we are to be in the church. Our relationship with Jesus repairs our relationship with others. This is why we don't sue one another. We show the same love that was given to us through Jesus 
to others. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us. When we tell the world, Jesus is the only one who gives us peace with God and with each other. True reconciliation from God enables me to reconcile with others and to forgive, even if they're not forgivable. There's nothing laid on it. We forgive because we've been forgiven. Let's pray.